We are back on this special edition of Stop Making Sense. Returning to the program, as he said he would, as he promised he would when he came on last August to talk about the planet Mars, is Dr. Bruce Betts, an official spokesman of the Planetary Society. Welcome back, Dr. Betts. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, um, let's let's bring people up to date. Uh, I, I crossed paths with you the second time at the Planet Fest, or I guess it was called Wild About Mars, on January 4th, as there was a room, an auditorium full of 800 people awaiting the spirit landing on uh, on the Red Planet. Yes, it was very exciting here in Pasadena. We had, uh, actually, we had over 2,000 people on that oh, wow. Saturday evening, basically a, a sellout crowd for the auditorium space we had watching the landing on the giant screen. It was one of those nice evenings where not only did we have the entertainment, which would have come off no matter what, but it was a much happier <laughs> evening with the glorious success of Spirit. It was a bit of a nail-biter there for a minute. It was. It was. It's, it's a pretty terrifying thing going <laughs> in terms of spacecraft going from 12,000 miles per hour to zero in, in a matter <laughs> of six minutes. It's, uh, it's a tough and challenging activity that, that most of the world's spacecrafts have tended to fail at going to Mars, although the U.S. now has quite a record with five out of six. Well, Spirit made it, and then a couple weeks later, so did Opportunity. Yes, indeed, and we've seen uh, two very interesting places on Mars from the two spacecraft and two very different places, looking at Kusev Crater with Spirit and Meridiani Planum with Opportunity, and lots of big discoveries, and they're still both going strong, so it's, it's, uh, you couldn't imagine a, a bigger, brighter success for this mission. I love going to the NASA website, and they'll do an update of what's going on, and since the two uh, probes are on different sides of the planet, they'll always show you one of them's in darkness and one of them's in light. Yes, it's been it's been quite a a, a cha- logistical challenge. The fact uh, it was their their price for success on the mission was having to actually manage two spacecraft that are basically about twelve hours off, and so you've got people working on spirit schedule and people working opportunity schedule, and for brief periods of time, people trying to kill themselves by working on both schedules. But it's it's quite the uh, logistical challenge at JPL to to accomplish things. They were intentionally set on opposite sides of the planet for communication reasons and, uh, and for monitoring, so intentionally one would be more active while the other wasn't. Well, it looks as though NASA's beat the Mars jinx here with like both orbiters and both landers functioning perfectly. They sure have. They've, they've got, as you say, the, the two orbiters, Mars Global Surveyor and Mars Odyssey from uh, 97 and 2001, still working great. Now two uh, two landers, and uh, in addition, the European Space Agency has their Mars Express orbiter that went into orbit uh, this at, uh, in December, and it's also working great. So all sorts of great Mars stuff. More more spacecraft working at Mars than we've ever had. Well, we hinted to our listeners last August that there would there would undoubtedly be some news related to water. Uh, the both spacecraft are very keenly looking for signs of water, and I guess NASA had a big press conference last week, last Tuesday, to, to tell the public what they'd found. Yes, they did, the, uh, particularly at the, the Opportunity Landing Site, which is in an area called Meridiani Planum. They found a number of pieces of evidence, all of which linked together to indicate that, indeed, there was, uh, that, that area was very wet with liquid water in the past. Of course, the, the, the interest is, as you know, is that you have no uh, liquid water on the surface stable right now. Water acts very much like dry ice on Earth or carbon dioxide. It's either gas or solid. But you see evidence in the geology of huge outflows of water in the past and trying to figure out more about that, whether this liquid water might have helped be an abode for life is really the one of the, the goal of 
these two rovers, and they were both set down in places that might have had past liquid water, but to have opportunity to actually have this string of, uh, of, of different discoveries that, that indicate it did have a lot of water is a, is a big deal for the mission and basically shows that they're, they're getting out of it what they had hoped. Well, it seems to me, I don't know whether you can speculate on this, but that NASA is bending over backwards to not uh, appear too anxious to find, to push forward findings of water. I had a chance to meet William K. Hartman, who was autographing his book, A Traveler's Guide to Mars, at, at your conference. And uh, if you and, and I recommend I would recommend this book to anyone. It's just a fascinating look at these landscapes on the red planet. Yes. But the evidence converges on on water from every direction. Yes. Yes. Now there there's there I would say is plenty of evidence of past liquid water on on Mars. We now have it from on the ground. So in that respect, uh, it, in some ways, it's been played up uh, in the press uh, perhaps more than, than it should. On, on the other hand, we have real evidence from the ground in one location that you had, uh, you had to have had lots of liquid water. Now, what's, what hopefully will happen is in the coming weeks, we will actually learn a lot more. Right now, you're at the point where you can say, yes, there was a lot of liquid water at some point at this landing site based upon these, this different string of, of discoveries. Uh, but what you can't say much about is how long was it around? Uh, was it just coming through from below in kind of a groundwater action? Or was there really, which would be your, your, your fantasy for, for developing, evolving life, was it really in pond, some type of ponded thing, a lake or even ocean type uh, format that, that it formed? And yeah. uh, they... They, they should have, possibly very soon, more indication of that at the, the Meridiani site, the, the Opportunity site. We hope, so we'll see. Just <laughs> looking at it, I just don't see, how you, I don't see how, how you can explain all of these morphologies and the chemistry now, additionally, without having a large body of water. A large body of water is one easy way to solve it, but yeah. the question is how long do you have a large body of water? There's some contingents in the science community that have argued for literally, you know, ocean covering half a planet. Right. Uh, that's still very hotly debated. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, basically, the other side of the picture is that you conceptually could have had ice that was, water ice that, for, say, froze in, in the soil, in the, in the surface, and was sitting around there, and then you had something happen, such as new volcanic action, and that basically melted the ice all at once, and you got these huge, the other geology we see various places, huge outflows of liquid water, which we clearly had in the past. I would say that's, uh, uh, scientifically, everyone agrees on that. But okay. exactly whether that was just kind of a, a few instantaneous periods and whether the liquid water vanished very quickly or whether it stayed around or whether, in the most extreme, you really did have an ocean. Those are all still still debated. So, yes, you had big bodies of water, certainly in our concept of, of, of lakes and rivers and, and things that, that literally were probably hundreds of miles on a side, but whether they were around for very long, whether they kept flowing, how deep they were, uh, all of those questions are, are still up in the air and vary from site to site. Uh, one interesting thing about the Opportunity site is there's no, there's no real obvious morphology right there that shows you, know, you don't have evidence of a big giant lake uh, right around there. But it was chosen because of the chemistry that was observed from orbit. And you yeah. actually saw the so-called coarse-grained hematite, which is associated frequently with liquid water. We should mention, too, that sort of in an odd coincidence, the opportunity wound right, wound right in the middle of a crater. Yes. 
<laughs> a very fortuitous hole-in-one, as they're calling it. Is there really there aren't a lot of craters right around it, and it literally bounced into a uh, 20 meter meter or so diameter crater. And the exciting, important thing it did for them is that crater had done some of their work for them and punched a hole through the upper surface and, and left this outcrop, which has been the focus for the entire uh, mission of Opportunity so far, basically, is studying this little outcrop, which is basically only the size of a, uh, uh, a street curb, <laughs> yeah. a few inches high. Right. But the, it's from that that all this information has been extracted. Yeah. Same reason geologists on Earth stare at things like road, cu- sure. road cuts and beach cliffs. Sure. Well, on the other side of the planet, the Spirit, I guess, is moving its way toward this Bonneville crater. Yes. And yeah. tell us about that, because that's uh, the Spirit has sort of been eclipsed by its uh, by its uh, its co-rover. Yes, it has, uh, especially with the uh, first of all, just initial. Although it 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 had the the limelight for the first three weeks when Opportunity hadn't landed yet, but then Opportunity lands in an area that really looks different from the four other sites we've seen before on Mars. Just physically, you don't see the big rock-strewn areas that all the other sites show. Uh, and so, yes, now Spirit's trying to work its way back, <laughs> and it has driven a lot farther than Opportunity is still playing in its first crater. Spirit's now gone over 300 meters. Okay. Uh, it's about a thousand feet, and is on the rim of the Bonneville, this Bonneville crater, uh, which is uh, I forgot exactly, but is something like a 150 meter diameter crater, I believe. And looking into that, hoping for some exposures of, of bedrock, like we saw at Opportunity. Uh, they did find evidence for liquid water there too, but in a much more minor sense that it. it in the rocks, they, it looks like there was some liquid water when the rocks were first volcanically emplaced, very different than the, the very wet, saturated opportunity site. So we'll see what Spirit has to turn up for us. Spirit didn't didn't have the luck of landing in a in a crater. Now right. it's at a crater, so we'll see what it does. It's had to work for its uh, for its strata. Exactly. <laughs> we'll work for strata. Yeah. Um, one thing I noticed that the microscopic pictures they took the, after they ground the rock, I guess, from the Opportunity site, it looks like there's little holes missing in the rock, and that's people are saying, well, that's because presumably a liquid may have dissolved some of the minerals out. Right. Um, I mean, isn't, isn't anything else but that really a stretch for my way of explanation? Yes. I mean, I, the op- Opportunity site really, uh, I guess, you know, what referred to before as the, the standard cautiousness of science uh-huh. scientists, in this case being reflected by NASA not wanting to go too far out on a limb. Uh, but even the scientists really have said that these pieces of evidence at the Opportunity site do indicate liquid water, and, and a good amount of it. And one of them is what you said. Yeah, almost any single observation, you could come up with some unusual circumstance that might cause, like, those holes, the these kind of things that look like you stuck a penny in there and then pulled it out again, yeah. uh, the so-called VUGS, V-U-G-S. It, but the most likely, as you said, is, is having uh, some type of soft mineral that was deposited in there probably in, with water, and then it was eroded out either through other water or something else. And you also have uh, other evidence, particularly in the, the chemistry is where a lot of the evidence for the water comes, that you find a lot of sulfates and other salts that you can only get that concentration basically by having them uh, precipitate fallout of, of water. It's like finding dry lake beds on Earth with lots of salts. 
Well, Dr. Betts, we have to address the F word, I think, when we're coming to Mars. Fossils. <laughs> uh, Phew, I was so- there for a second. <laughs> you were going to go way beyond my expertise <laughs> with Mars. Okay, fossils. When somebody pulled away, uh, I guess they took a look at one of the drill marks. It looks like a piece of twisty macaroni. <laughs> and people are saying, and reporters were asking people at NASA, well, what is that? It looks like a fossil. <laughs> And they're figuring it has to be it has to be an artifact. Yeah, they're finding all sorts of strange shapes, some of which are artifacts of, of the drill, some of which are artifacts in the images, some of which are other funny little things. Um, clearly, yes, fossil would be your uh, uh, one of your the holy grails <laughs> from Mars, but a tough thing to see. The, these I should probably emphasize: these rovers are not designed to look for life or past life or what they're designed to look for is to evaluate what the whether the environment was one that might have been conducive to life really robotic geologists looking for evidence of past water uh, but yeah they, they see very interesting old features there's a whole fun story also about the uh, following the bunny they called it the little a little piece of what is probably airbag material that looked kind of like a, a uh, little bunny ears, and it actually has moved around in the wind. So oh, really? There. And I hadn't so heard this. Followed a, a cute little story of that around the Opportunity Lander, and, and, and the bunny disappeared, and now they think they found it blown under the rover. Oh. Uh, and based upon visible spectra, not surprisingly, it, it looks like it's just a piece of ripped airbag material, but they, they're different, funny little things like that. But definitely... No fossil evidence so far, <laughs> and probably won't find any. I did get a kick out of seeing one photo that I think it was of the spirit looking back, and for all the world, it looks like a UFO on the Martian landscape. <laughs> I guess it was the covering of the heat shield. Possibly they've they've got yeah they've got some really nice images of from uh, Opportunity of the uh, the back shell and the parachute off in the distance on the planes. And maybe that's and now, it. And, but you're right. They now also, from opportunity, have seen the heat shield. And it looks like, although this hasn't been out there, just from looking at the pictures, they may have, uh, at Spirit, come upon the uh, the heat shield near this Bonneville crater. All right, let's uh, keep, hope we can keep Robert been, Hoagland away from this. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> he, of course, was the, the face on Mars, uh, go- <laughs> goofy guy. Watch out for the bunny on Mars! <laughs> Well, Dr. Betts, why don't you get, let's take a moment to plug your show. I just was taking a look at it over at KUCI on the website. The Planetary Society is putting on a show on our sister station down there in Irvine uh, once a week. And tell us about it. Okay. Our show is called Planetary Radio, and uh, it appears, say, once a week. airs on KUCI uh, 5.30 on Mondays, but it also appears on our website, planetary.org, and we've got the, the whole roughly year-and-a-half history of it archived. And every show we interview uh, one of the people involved with planetary explorations or, or search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Of course, with the Mars Exploration Rover mission, we've had a lot of interviews with the uh, various project personnel, scientists, managers, engineers from that mission, but also covering all sorts of topics, including science fiction. Uh, and then we have, uh, and that's hosted by our, our host, Matt Kaplan, and I have my segment I do with him at the end of the show where we tell you some fun things to look for in the, the night sky and introduce some humor into it, hopefully, and, uh, and some trivia contests, things like that. Well, I, I think we should talk to I'm trying to talk to their program director. Maybe we can get that show up here in KDVS as well. That would be great. We'd love it. And if yeah. we can get your show down here, that would also be great. Well, wouldn't that be a nice exchange? Yes. <laughs> and there is something interesting in the sky coming up. We should mention that uh, the planets are all going to be visible later this month. They sure are. Four are visible very easily right now, and uh, by later in this month, Mercury will, will poke its head up. If you walk out in the evening sky, it's hard to miss Venus in the, in the west, extremely bright, and it's the really bright star-looking object. And then if you look in the east, it's Jupiter is the extremely bright star-looking object. You've got Mars and Saturn in between the two, Mars being faint 
reddish, and Saturn almost right overhead after after sunset, and pretty soon Mercury will be poking up over there in the uh, the west after sunset, and you'll get all five naked eye planets at once. All right, not something that happens all that often. Nope, good fun. <laughs> well, Dr. Bruce Best, thanks for coming on once again. I hope that you will uh, join us maybe a few months down the line as, as these missions wind down and the data stops coming in, and we can take a look back. That would be great. I would love to. All right, well, we'll be talking to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, I, I don't know whether this uh, this subject interests you, the listening public, as much as it does me. I'm trying to, to basically stoke the fires because, you know, I just think this is such a dream come true. Having two robots with cameras for eyes, you know, with scoops for hands, with wheeled feet, clamoring about on the Martian service, doing experiments, sending the data back to us, sending the pictures back to us. It's not sci-fi. It's happening. I mean, this is, this is pretty cool. Uh, one thing Dr. Betts didn't mention was that um, that uh, the the Spirit and Opportunity rovers are near the equator, and the two Martian moons orbit near the equator, and it's possible because they orbit like, you know, one of them orbits, I think, once a day, basically, to get pictures of the eclipses. Now, it requires some great timing and some finesse on the part of the, uh, the controllers in Pasadena Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but they were able to actually capture photographs of both Phobos and Deimos, the two moons of Mars, as they went in front of the sun's surface. Now, the sun is half the size at Mars as it is here on Earth, but the moons are a lot smaller than our moons, so they don't cover up all of the sun, even with a smaller sun, so they're not nearly as spectacular as eclipses here on Earth, but it's still pretty cool stuff. Well, we enjoyed very much talking to Dr. Bruce Betts. Uh, I, I would like to add that when he was the host of the um, Wild About Mars Planet Fest um, a couple months ago, he did a terrific job. And, uh, and we would like to especially note that for his parents who are here in the listening, in the listening area and I hope are tuned in today. Turns out Dr. Betts uh, is, has a local connection. Now, another reason why you know, I'm just such an unabashed supporter of going to Mars is the fact that we spend aerospace money on far, far less worthy causes. Did you know that George Bush's budget for the next two years includes $10.7 billion for missile defense? Over twice as much money as for any other single weapon system in the Pentagon budget. This summer, Bush is planning to start deploying the first components of a missile defense system. Six anti-missile missiles in Alaska and four right here in California, making California ground zero for a potential attack. Despite the fact that, as Fred Kaplan points out on Slate on the web, in the past six years of flight tests, here's what the Pentagon's Missile Defense Agency has demonstrated. A missile can hit another missile in midair as long as A, the operators know exactly where the target missile has come from and where it's going. B, the target missile is flying at slower than normal speed. C, it's transmitting a special beacon that exaggerates its radar signal, thus making it much easier to track. D, only one target missile has been launched. And E, the attack happens in daylight. That's the kind of thing we're spending tens of billions of dollars on. I think that we should divert that money into something that's going to be really beneficial to Earth, such as going to Mars. Anyway, enough of that soapbox. We're out of time on today's program. Thanks once again to Dr. Bruce Betts of the Planetary Society and investigative journalist Lisa Pease. 
This was Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Mr. Edward McMillan. Next week, we will bring you Charles Lewis from the Center for Public Integrity to talk about the buying of the president 2004. And we look forward to bringing that to you. So we'll see you then. Stay tuned now for Todd Urich.